Our speaker for the hour is Wesley Walker. He didn't give us much to talk about. And the reason is because it's never uh, about Wesley, with Wesley. It's about God's word. It's about ministering to others. It's about teaching people truth. It's about serving. But he is a graduate of Bear Valley. He was a 2005 graduate of the Bear Valley Bible Institute. He also got his MDiv in, in biblical languages from Fried Hardeman University. He teaches at the Nashville uh, School of Preaching, as well as uh, he teaches a master's course here in the Bear Valley Bible Institute master's degree program. He is married and has three kids, which he loves dearly. And he is a great dad and father and husband. He's a great family man. But mostly, he's a good student of the word. And, and I can tell you, uh, we are probably unlikely friends, but we're close friends. Wesley is a great man of God, challenges your thinking. He's a tremendous exegete. Uh, and personally, he's, he's someone I look up to. He honors God with his life and his teaching, and you are blessed to be here this morning. Wesley, come preach the word. It is a blessing for me to be here this morning to have this opportunity to preach and teach. You know, last year with so many of these type events canceled, it's been refreshing this year to be at a few of them, to get the chance to be edified, to get the chance to edify. What a blessing it is that hopefully we do not take for granted. As mentioned earlier today uh, by Brother Harold, the blessings of everyday things we were used to when they were cut off from us to some degree last year Hopefully, love to see just how important they were for each and every one of us and how valued the ordinary things should be in our lives and how valued we should make those things and how important those things are. Took a shutdown to some degree, hope to see just the normal things of life really do bring the joy that we need day in and day out. And this time here together is a joy to me. It's a joy to me to be able to see both new friends. I met a, one of the students here, Cameron who somehow got the short straw to pick me up from Kansas, or also known as DIA, last night around 10 o'clock, then drive me into Denver. And somehow Denver traffic last night did not feel disappointed, as we had at least three times. We were bumper to bumper at 10.30 at night coming back into uh, to here this morning. And then he was gracious enough to get up early and bring me to breakfast this morning. So I got to know him uh, today. It's always good to see old friends as well, not just because Mike Hyde is old in age, but also because we're old friends having been together now for 18 years, uh, knowing each other since our time at, at Bear Valley together. Mike and I were students together at Bear Valley, which is always interesting when, I think you might have been VP over something at that point, is sitting beside you, struggling with whatever class we're in uh, together and during those times there. So Mike was there as a student with me, and we have become close friends uh, ever since then. Now, as Mike mentioned before, I am married. I have three kids. They normally go on these trips with me, but they've all gotten a bit older, so school begins to take some priority. And sometimes I take one of the kids with me on these particular trips for daddy's son or daddy daughter trips that we head out on. But because I was flying in late last night and speaking somewhat early this morning, I thought having to manage a five-year-old, which was his turn to come on a trip with me at 9 a.m. after he'd slept very little uh, last night, uh, I thought it would probably be best to keep him in Nashville. So they are there in Nashville today, 
And he just texted me saying he was disappointed because his baseball game got canceled because of rain uh, today. But I have three kids. They're nine, seven, and five. And if you have kids, there are times in your life where you're overjoyed with how well they play together. And emphasize the word there are times because that's not always the case if you have three kids who are nine, seven, and five. I grew up with two younger brothers, and I assumed that boys just innately sort of fought together. We wrestled, we'd fight, we had arguments. And then I had two girls and realized it's not just a boy thing. They also can have their arguments and fights. And there are times at my house where I'm overjoyed with the fact that they're doing stuff together. Like I'll go back and they'll be reading a book together or playing school together or playing family and they're getting along and things are great. And it's like, wow, I am I'm a super parent. Look how awesome they are back there just all getting along and doing cool stuff together. Both my girls play softball, and so one's a pitcher. Uh, It's our first year pitching, and the seven-year-old wants to catch, and so that's a great combination right now. Uh, She pitches and catches, and that goes well for four or five pitches until one of the other one doesn't quite pitch right or throw right or put the glove out right, and that happens there. And Emmett's the the baby. He's five, and he is uh, very much the, the baby of the family, the only boy, and I think there's some issues there where he's sort of babied by everybody, and so he's used to getting his way. But the girls have gotten used to the fact that Emmett's now five, he's no longer a baby, so they don't, they don't quite give him the preference he's used to. That causes rifts every now and then. When they play together, it's an amazing thing to stop and watch all three of your kids play, even just for a few minutes to see them have that joy. And you think to yourself, this is exactly what I want to see. I want to see my kids, uh, who are part of me and my wife and a part of this family, I want to see them get along. I want to see them have joy together. I want to see them just enjoy life together. We have those family meetings periodically. We talk about the fact of, I know you guys are fighting now, but, but one day you're going to be close and it's going to be great. You're going to want to be around your sister and your brother. And, and you know, there's days it's like that and days it's like they don't want to be around each other at all. But every now and then, uh, you'll hear those arguments in the back. And it's frustrating as a parent because you, you might have an argument over things like a gift you've given them, right? You, you try to pick out gifts for your kids. You try to think about their personalities and what they are. And, and when I travel, I always come back with something that sort of relates to them. And all of a sudden, they're back in their bedrooms and they're playing. And then one of the kids is mad because the other kid got a gift that they wanted or didn't get the gift that they wanted. They begin to fight amongst each other. They begin to sort of argue. And the thing you gave them to be a blessing, that that gift you gave them for the purpose of, of being a blessing to them, let them enjoy it, becomes a source of division. They begin to fire the fact, well, I wanted that doll or this thing, or I wanted this toy or that toy. And it's always funny to me because it would be a toy or a thing they would care less about, except for the fact that their brother or their sister has that toy, and now it's the greatest toy known in the history of mankind. And why didn't you bring me that toy? It's the toy you brought me. And all of a sudden, the gifts they were given bring about division. It's exasperating. (laughs) As a parent, you just got to take a deep breath and remind yourself of parents who've gone before who say things like, it'll get worse and then it'll get better. That it'll get worse part's always struggling. So they're not teenagers yet, but it'll get worse and then it'll get better. And then they'll become friends and things will work out great. One of my best friends in uh, Tennessee, one of our elders there at the church, his last child just graduated high school. They're empty nesters now. So he has a boy, a girl, girl, boy, just like I do. So he's sort of my, this is a stage. It's not the end of the world. They're going to eventually keep fighting, then they'll get along with each other. He tells the horror stories of their childhood to give that confidence that it's not always going to be that way. But there are times as a parent I step back and I think, I wonder if this is how God feels about his children. When he gives us good and great gifts and things that are helpful to us and benefits that we have, and yet we use them as ways for us to cause division. With the very blessings that God bestows upon us, we don't use those to bring unity and use those to edify, but we use them 
to find ways to divide. You know, the last couple of years, we've been in a crisis of division. I'm not old enough to give a historical sort of background. This is the worst in the history of the nation. I like studying history, so there's been times in our nation where there's been some pretty big divisions, and there's been times in our history where people fought over all sorts of things. In fact, we had a, a civil war at one point in our history. We physically took up arms against each other and killed one of those. So there's, there's been times in our history where division has been bad. But, but in terms of my 36 years on this earth and the last 20 years of me sort of knowing what's going on, the, the last two years seem to be worse than anything I've ever experienced in terms of division. And people created in the image of God here in this country seem to be at odds with each other about every little thing. In fact, we live in a world that's sort of a counterpeg for division. You've got social media where anybody can put an opinion out there and they can sort of stir up their crowd. And we know the algorithms of things like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever the cool kids use nowadays that are younger are all built for the fact that outrage sells. Get, get eyes on the screen and we know the fact from psychological studies that we like to be mad about stuff. We like to have stuff that makes us mad and so they make sure those posts that most divide, that most anger, that most get our blood boiling, those posts go to the very top of the screen or turn on our new cycles. No matter what news cycle you listen to or what particular news show you watch, we have 24 hours of news cycles, and their primary job, in case you didn't know this, is not to inform you. They all have these things about we're here to inform you or give you the, the facts or whatever it might be. That's not their primary job. That They're not sitting there because they're altruistic saying, I just want to make sure every person in the world knows the truth about every topic. They are there for one purpose. They're there to get you to watch a show so they can sell advertising dollars, so they can cash their checks of millions of dollars and do it again the next night. That's their whole purpose. Here's what they've learned. That if they can get us mad about stuff and divide us along lines of the us versus them, we will sit and watch and consume their content hour after hour after hour. Find a cable news host on any of the cable news channels that are on television or YouTube. There's, there's channels probably every day that's a different channel. And, and just ask yourself, what do they lead with? It's not they lead with the fact of a great day in our country, the weather was perfect, people staying together, a man helped another man. They lead with, did you see what this took place? And can you believe this administration or that administration or this thing or that thing? And all of a sudden we bring... Division. We are set up for a powder keg because we have these things in place which are driven for the fact of dividing us and separating us, whether it's a social media site or it's a news station. They were built for the purpose of dividing us. And then you throw in the last two years where you've got COVID becomes a word. And we learned all kinds of new words last year, right? We learned about social distancing and COVID and masks. And half my friends on Facebook became experts in uh, diseases uh, that came about. And it's funny, I have all these friends who are experts and they don't ever agree with each other on all the different experts' opinion they have. And we had arguments and we had fights and we had individuals who are upset about this or that. And we still have protests there where I live and in sort of south of Nashville, there's protests about things. In fact, we had a school board meeting about, uh, I guess, a month ago uh, for our particular county that made national news. Uh, because as a healthcare provider was leaving the school board meeting, invited in to give just their basic sort of, here's my view of the situation, what we should be doing, uh, they were threatened but not getting able to get back to their car. And one guy said, we'll let you leave, but we know where you live. And I thought, this is such a shameful thing. 
no matter where you stand on any particular issue, to, to threaten somebody who was called in to give their uh, expert opinion and say, well, we know where you live, and as almost a threat, how are you going to survive in this world? That was my kid's first week of school in the new school district, supposed to be the best school district in the state. And I thought, wow, kind of welcoming in here. And all of a sudden, I've got family saying, this is where, this is where your kids go to school now? I said, it is. We're not all that way. In fact, the people who are on the video don't have any kids in the school at all. They're there to antagonize. But that's the world that we live in. And we had fights over, should you wear a mask or not wear a mask? And videos of individuals calling each other sheeps and whatever it might be there, saying, you live in fear. We had all this division. Then we had a political election, which are always such a great unifying moment in our country, are they not? And again, we've had division, and we still have division. And we had sights and sounds that took place, and we had a year of protest, if you're on one side of the issue, and we had a year of destruction on the other side of the issue, where things happened, and cities burned, and individuals lost property and life, and we had all this talk about all of this division. And you wonder if God doesn't look up from heaven and look at his children and say, all the things that I've given you, the, the freedom you have, the, the abilities you have to reason, the things that have been gifts from God, and you bring them about and you uh, divide. And it's sad to see that in the world around us, but it's worse to see that in the church. You, know, you wish that the divisions that the world had would be just that, divisions of the world, and the church would be a shining example of a different type of community. That yes, we might have differences of opinions and we might have different things, but we're not going to let those be things that divide us in all these different camps. But the truth is, that's never how God's people have functioned. Go back all the way back to the first siblings, right? Cain and Abel, and you have a pretty difficult situation there where one kills the other in that very first connection there. Or go through the history of the children of God and you see division throughout. In fact, we have an entire epoch of time that we call the divided kingdom because the children of God couldn't decide where they were going to worship despite what God had said, who their king was going to be. And we have sort of two tracks of Israel and Judah running through most of our, what we call our Old Testament, as this divided kingdom. You get to the first century and you don't have a monolithic Jewish society. You have numerous different sects of the Jews, right? You've got, uh, you've got Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and more that we haven't even discovered yet that have their their different views of things we have division that takes place you grab new testament christianity jesus comes along dies for our sins the great unifying mark of all humanity the jewish messiah has died for the sins of his people in the entire world and we're invited in to be a part of god's kingdom and then you read the new testament books and you realize they couldn't get along either in fact, walk through the New Testament books for just a moment, and one after another after another is a book about division. Romans, you've got Jew and Gentile that can't get along. They, they've had some internal conflicts in the city of Rome. They have some leadership conflicts, and all of a sudden, they can't get along with each other. Galatians, they're fighting over boundary markers. What things really matter? If you don't eat the right kind of food that I like, and you're not, you don't have the right sort of medical, uh, 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 medical procedure that I had when I was a kid, then you can't be a part of us. We have those fights in the church. Or you jump through and you think about a book like James, where you have sort of one group of Christians, Jewish Christians, but they're fighting over wealth and divided over who's wealthy and who's poor and how to treat one another. Division seems to be a part of, unfortunately, the history of God's people. And I think the last two years have exasperated many of those divisions and sown many fault lines that maybe always were there. Because I see folks post on social media about their particular opinion on this subject or that subject, 
And I see those same folks from so-and-so Church of Christ or preach this place and that place, calling other brothers and sisters in Christ all sorts of terrible things, saying they're on one side that they're killing each other, they don't love their neighbor. And on the other side, saying that you're living in fear and back and forth, judging each other in ways that, that are extreme. And I wonder if God doesn't look down and wonder what exactly is going on here. That those created in my image can't seem to get along on a national level should not be surprising to us. But when we get back to the church level, this, this whole community created from every nation, tongue, and tribe, united about one thing that God is doing, that group should be able to get along. But yet, that's just not the case. In the last sort of couple of years, almost every church leader I've talked to has talked about the struggles they have had through this time of the pandemic that doesn't seem ever to end, and how they're having issues with things like should we mask or not mask, and folks are leaving about this decision or that decision, and things are being brought up, and they're seeing individuals fighting within families in the church about whether you're vaccinated or not. They are seeing these issues so badly so that one of my friends says, I'll be glad when we get through this, we can go back to arguing about the color of the carpet instead about what's going on here. It's funny, but it's sad to think about the division that we see. And you get a book like 1 Corinthians, where Paul is writing to a group of Christians who are coming out of a pretty diverse background. And if you read through the lines of 1 Corinthians, a background in which some of us would be quite uncomfortable hanging out with some of those folks. When you read chapter 6, and he says, and such were some of you, I wonder how comfortable we would be with some of those folks walking through our doors that are listed in that particular chapter there. They have some issues that they're dealing with, and one of those is they cannot seem to get along. There in chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, he reports from the house of Chloe, who seems to be a, a friend of Paul, who writes this particular letter and says, Paul, there are divisions among us. And Paul says, I know that's so. And then he writes a letter in verse 10 saying the purpose of this letter is to help us be united in our judgments, in our views, to, to unite this body of Christ because that's where Corinth is going to shine in a light in their community. And throughout the particular book of Corinthians, you have all these different issues that Paul is dealing with, attempting to lay out and say, here's how you need to think about this as a Christian, here's how you shouldn't divide, trying to fight back their arrogance, sort of the big, big sort of negative thing there, and they're being puffed up, and trying to push them to a better way of things. And in my text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you have Paul beginning a new subject. In fact, you might see in your Bible the repetition of the phrase, now concerning. It's used in chapter 8, it's used there in chapter 12, 15, middle of chapter 11. It's sort of Paul's way of, of changing up subjects in the midst of the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, it appears to be Paul answering some of the questions or concerns of Chloe where she has written to Paul and said there's divisions amongst us and might have outlined those divisions, things like we have issues of the Lord's Supper and how it's been taken, we have issues of spiritual gifts, and Paul is basically saying, let me answer those specific questions for you. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, really this whole section goes to the end of chapter 14, you have Paul talking about spiritual gifts, these gifts that God gives his church, and he looks at these and says, here is something God has granted you, that God has given you as a blessing, and you've turned it into a subject and a source of division. Now, how sad is that, to take the thing that God gave the church for the purpose of its flourishing and make that the reason why you're dividing amongst your brothers. If you read the lines in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, the issue seems to be there are camps and divisions based off of which gift you have. 
In a superiority complex, if you have a certain gift, specifically the gift of tongues, then you are more superior than somebody who has a lesser gift in your mind, and therefore you felt yourself to be arrogant or better than they were because you received this spiritual gift, and the word received there is on purpose. You received it. You didn't earn it. You received it, and therefore you are better than the other person because your gift is better than theirs. Or you had folks who said, well, I didn't get that better gift. I got some, you know, in their mind, lame gift like faith, and so I, I'm not going to actually practice my gift. That's their mind. That's their fighting they have. And so Paul is writing to a group of, of, of Christians. And in my mind, he's sitting around the dinner table with his kids and saying, look, guys, I know that you're going to one day love each other like you should, but can we start today? We don't have to fight over this stuff. We don't have to be divided. It'll bring more joy to our household if you guys don't fight about stuff that doesn't matter. And here's Paul writing to this church, and the first 11 verses will be there today. He's going to lay out this, this concept of what unites us. And in fact, there's sort of three pillars I want to build off of today that Paul is going to show unite the Corinthians around the concept of, of spiritual gifts. But these three pillars are not just spiritual gift pillars. They apply to any sort of divisive situation in our churches because Paul is going to give us some universal principles and say, if you follow these things, you're going to be able to overcome division that you see. And he begins simply with this, a reminder of our sameness. If you notice that verse, in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11, you get to verses 3 and following. You have Paul repeating the phrase, you have the diversities of gift, you have the varieties of gifts, you have the different workings, but you have that repetition of the word same there, the same Lord, the same Spirit, and the same God. You know, Paul likes to use what we call triads, using sort of three things to make his point. A famous one's the next chapter, right? And what remains is faith, hope, and love. But Paul oftentimes roots Christian sort of unity on the triune nature of God and goes back to the fact that you have Lord, you have, you have uh, Spirit, and you have God here. All three of them have worked to give you the gifts, and all three of them are the same one for each one of you. The word Lord, after the book of Acts, almost exclusively refers to Jesus. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and God, after the book of Acts, is almost exclusively referring to the Father. He's talking about what we call the Trinity here, and he's laying out the fact that you all have the same God. And his point's trying to be this. How can you be united when what's the most important identical issue in your life, uh, the, the biggest issue of identity is whether or not you serve the right God, especially in their day and age. You're united on this. It's the same Lord, the same God, the same Spirit. How can you be divided when you all have the same thing? It's similar to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 in a section about unity. He talks about you have ones, and he lays out those ones and says, how can you not have practical unity when you have this theological foundation of the same Lord, the same God, the same Spirit, and you all are able to say there in verse 3, Jesus is Lord, how do you not have unity? In fact, Paul is going to make a comparison. It's going to run through this entire section here between the God of the Bible, the one true God, and idolatry. In fact, he's sort of curious, he says in verse 2, you know about these dumb idols. Now, I want you to kind of see this. Why does Paul throw an idolatry here in the midst of a discussion centered around this idea of spiritual gifts that come from God? Because he's trying to show them they're acting like they used to. Think about the world of idolatry. So much of your identity was based on which God did you view as your supreme God? I've had the privilege to work amongst those who are Hindus, and try to work with them and learning about the gospel. And one of the biggest situations I have in sort of getting them to a, a full understanding of the God of the Bible is the viewpoint of you can just add another God to your panoply. So one of them had me over for dinner. We were going to watch their wedding ceremony. 
We were going to eat together, and we ate Indian food. Uh, my first time eating Indian food, and uh, I can't handle authentic Indian food. It was not the, the best night for me afterwards. But I had the food. I ate with them. And then she excitingly goes back to her bedroom and says, I want you to show you something. And she had in her room a shrine with an idol of Krishna there. And she was as proud as that as could be. And we talked about Jesus, and she called herself a Christian, but in her mind, there was no division between having Krishna here and these things. And she spent so much of her life trying to please Krishna. They had a house fire that we were able to help with as a church that got us connected there, but she stopped eating meat because she was convinced by eating meat, she had upset Krishna, and that's why her house burned down, because she had done that. And it gave me insight into the first century world just for a moment where so much of your life was based off of which God you were attempting to please. So you might have a God of Ephesus where Diana's your God, or you might choose one of the gods of the Greeks or the Romans who just renamed those gods. You would choose your God, and your whole life was, how do I please that particular God? And you would have guilds, you know, places where you worked that would have gods, and you'd have individuals that would have your gods and locations. And guess what took place whenever all of a sudden you divided up based on your different gods? Well, tribalism did, right? So my God's better than your God, and I'm going to make my God happy, and that's what really matters. And so Paul is trying to make an argument that in this sort of tribalistic viewpoint the Corinthians have, where they're sort of choosing their tribe over the one tribe they should have, the same Lord, the same God, the same Spirit, they are going back to their old pagan ways. They're they're bringing it up and saying, well, we are the tongue speakers. We're better than you non-tongue speakers, and we are the prophets, and we are the interpreters. And they divide themselves into different tribes, and there they stand. That's not a spiritual gift thing. I see us too often dividing ourselves up into tribes, right? I had somebody the other day we were talking about, and this, you know, it's hard to bring up any topic. I know in a room like this there's a diversity of opinions. We're talking about the vaccine. I'm not sure where you stand on the vaccine. I don't really, well, maybe I care, but I don't care that much for you to come and tell me. If you have an opinion, I don't really want to hear it after my sermon today here, but they're talking about the vaccine, and their argument was, I am a conservative, and therefore I'm not taking it. And I thought to myself, I wasn't engaged in this argument, just sort of overhearing. I thought to myself, that's not really an argument. It's sort of a, you have decided this is what this means, and that is now your tribe, and whatever that tribe says, you're going to do. Or somebody comes along and says, well, I am this, and therefore I'll take this entire package along with it. And I see more and more Christians who are Christians, but they become Republican first, or Democrat first, or they're Christians, but they really are their conservative first, or this first, or that first, and all of a sudden we divide it up into these different tribes. You know, a church whose very founding was the idea of unity, and we're not going to be a church with a denominational name and divide ourselves up, has become that, as I hear Christian brothers and sisters divide themselves up based on a political affiliations or what they view of this thing or that thing, and all that stuff comes into play, and you stop for a moment and realize we've gone back to old paganism. Where we have a different God, not the same Lord, the same God, uh, the same Spirit, but a different God. And we just try to please whatever that God is. Because normally our friends, our cable news we watch, the peer pressure of those around us, whatever it might be, we attempt to satisfy them so we can fit in. Reading about the unity that might take place there. So he lays out and says, these are the same Lord, the same God, the same Spirit. You should have unity. That's pillar number one when it comes to Christian unity, is that we are a part of a community that starts out with the triune God who invites us into communion with him, and we should maintain that unity he's invited us into. But secondly, this, Paul wants us to recognize that these 
diversities of gifts, and I would say diversity sometimes of even personalities, are a blessing from God himself. You know, if you kind of walk through 1 Corinthians 12, and other teachers will do that throughout this weekend, you'll see Paul's big argument is going to be something like this, that God gives the church the gifts it needs to function. And if you have a particular gift in Corinth, it's because God said the church needed that gift, just like the body needs different body parts, the church needs the gift, which is not new theology. In fact, if you kind of walk through the work of the Spirit throughout the Bible, you'll see one of the, the big points the Spirit does is bless the people of God to accomplish the mission of God. So whether that's the building of the tabernacle, where God gives certain folks the Spirit so they can build the tabernacle the way He wants it to, to accomplish His mission, or it's somebody like David receiving the Spirit of God to to be anointed as king, or it's somebody like the prophet who receives the Spirit of God to preach and teach. God gives the Spirit in a way in which it blesses so that the people of God can function and they can can have a world that's flourishing. In fact, that's kind of the goal of humanity. There in Genesis chapter 1, God takes a world of chaos, makes it functional, and says, here is this new and better world for you to flourish in. Here in the church, God says, here's these diversity of people and things and gifts, and we're going to put them all together, not so you can have fights about the diversity and opinions and gifts, but so you can flourish together. We need each other. So in the section here, Paul is going to speak about the importance of diversity, laying out for us that this is not just merely a, a flaw in the system, that somehow God should have made more of a, of a church that just fits my view and my opinion, and not sort of this big tent of God inviting every nation, every tongue, every tribe together with all the diversity that goes along with that. That's what Paul is going to get at here. You know, talk in this section about varieties of ministries and different workings and manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit. And Paul wants the Corinthian church to see that they all have these different gifts, but it wasn't because God messed something up. It's exactly how God wanted it. I hear folks sometimes, and you'll read this sometimes in some church growth guru book that'll talk about we need to be reaching a target audience. And I get it from one degree, you've got to have something you're aiming towards, but normally the target audience is somebody like you, right? You want to find somebody that's like Wesley, you know, mid-30s, likes sports a whole lot, three kids, trying to make it through the world that he's in. That's, that's what you'd like to have, right? I like to have somebody I can just kind of watch a football game with and I have to talk to if my team's losing. I want somebody like that to sit there with me. So we have these target groups, which we need to have a a group church like this and a church like that, and our cities sort of divide up that way. We have this kind of church and that kind of church. In fact, that 21st century Churches of Christ book has now has a key in the front that has like letters, so you're like, this is this is B and C. So you'll know what kind of church it is before you go there, and you can kind of look through that and see it. You kind of step back and think, wow, this is this is where we've gotten. Because somehow we just have divided the best way to handle diversity is just to divide ourselves up into different groups and sort of say, we have diversity, but, you know, not here. That's, you know, if we act at the other church, we have diversity there. Well, Paul said every nation, tongue, and tribe comes under the, under the same God, and now they have a variety of ministries and gifts and a variety, a variety of workings. I want you to see the word that Paul uses there in those sections there. He talked about the same Lord, the same Spirit, the same God, so there are a variety of, of gifts. And we'll get that in just a moment. There. I want you to see this idea of gifts being pretty important because I think one of the point Paul is making by talking about these in terms of spiritual gifts over and over and over again is a concept they're not earned. And I think that's one of the points Paul is trying to make. How can you be arrogant about something you didn't earn? Like that, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. 
I played high school football, pretty successful team. And we had certain players who would receive a championship ring, whether they played a snap or whether they even cared at all. In fact, we had one guy I didn't really like a whole lot. He was lazy in practice, didn't do a whole lot, didn't do anything during the game, but always was the first to jump to the front of the picture to get that picture of saying, you know, we won the championship. And I thought, we did, but I don't know how you did. And that was sort of the mindset there. But they, they had felt they'd earned it. They wanted that there. It was like, my mind's like it was a gift. You sort of sat back there and did nothing for, you know, 12 weeks, and all of a sudden you get to have the glory here at the end. Well, Paul speaks about gifts here, reminds the fact these are given from God. He also speaks about things like ministries, the text says. The word there is, comes from a word from deacon there. It's diakonos, and the idea he's trying to make is we have this variety of services. And again, I think it's, it's fighting against the Corinthian arrogance. You know, the big issue in Corinth is this arrogance. They're puffed up at every little thing. that Their preacher is better than your preacher, or, or their knowledge is better than your knowledge. They're, they're a puffed up group of folks here. And so Paul speaks of diakonosis, diakonos, and this idea of, of service, because guess what? Service is not about arrogance. It's about seeing what this gift is to use to somebody else. It's not about glorifying yourself. It's about using it in this moment. And he speaks about workings. Reminding those who might say, well, my gift is not whatever you think is important, so I'm not going to do it. But Paul says a variety of gifts for the purpose of working. This is for you to use this gift. It is needed and necessary. My guess is whoever preaches the next section of text is going to hammer that home with a different body analogy there. But Paul's point is you've got these things for the purpose of serving. In fact, if you jump to chapter 14, he'll lay out the fact that the purpose of this serving is the edification, the building up of the body of Christ. That's why God has given this to you. And the whole point from Paul seems to be, in using this different wording, is your job is to use your gifts to help someone else. It's not about you. That's hard because oftentimes the gifts that are most public are the ones we put at a higher esteem. And there's a temptation for those who have those gifts to make it about them. And I can say that because I'm a preacher who has, I believe, a gift from God in preaching. But it's easy to take the gift from God and say it's about me and driving my personality. And you get almost cult-like followings of your particular preacher. And, you know, Paul says that a little bit there in the early parts of 1 Corinthians, does he not? And you see it today as well. My preacher said this, or this guy said this, or the commentary I like says this. And we get that same idea because we forgot what we were supposed to do. Or we get jealous of one another, thinking, well, this person has this thing or that thing, and we have to step back and realize we are here given by God to be servants. And whatever service you have, do it. You want to bring about unity? Sometimes I think that the, the, the less working a church is, and this, I can't prove this, but the less working or outwardly focused or about the mission of God the church is, the more internal conflicts they seem to have. Because if all you're concerned about is what's going on inside of a building, that you'll fight about that all the time. And I saw this too when it came to like our worship assembly. People got so mad about mask or no mask. And I thought, that's an hour. Maybe a few hours because some folks sort of simplified things during the COVID time. But you're this mad about an hour. Let's me think to some degree, this has become the pinnacle of your Christian faith. And for somebody to touch this, they've somehow taken Christianity away from you. And you step back and you think, if we were more outward focused, would we have these same divisions? If the person who could speak in tongues understood their gift was the edification of the body, 
would they not in that moment not be arrogant but want to use it? If the person who was built over here and their job was to, to whatever it might be, was to do something over here, would they not say, I'm not going to use it? Would they say, I'm going to use this even if it doesn't give me the same sort of satisfaction something else might give me? But Paul speaks to the necessity of these gifts. In fact, the gifts are listed there in verse 9 through 11. And, and I will say this, there was a preacher in the 4th century named John Chrysostom. And John Chrysostom had a commentary on 1 Corinthians. You can read that commentary if you'd like. It's, I think it's available online. Just type it in. And I think it's section 59 or something like that. You can read about it there. And it lays out there. And in that particular section, he says, you know, two centuries removed from this, I have no idea exactly what these different gifts are, but I'll give my best to lay them out. So I don't want to arrogantly say 2,000 years later that I have every you know, internal view of what these gifts are. But they seem to all fall into the category of revelation. You've got knowledge and wisdom, prophecy, speaking in tongues. They're all revelatory gifts, God giving you supernatural knowledge. You've got interpretation of tongues, discernment of spirits. Again, seems to be revelatory. Which one of these are from God? Which aren't? How do we interpret these? You've got confirmation of those gifts, things like miracles and workings. The one that's hard to categorize is, is faith. Uh, but if eight of the nine all seem to be revelatory, I'm just going to go ahead and say faith somehow is revelatory as well because the Greek word there is pretty broad. So it's probably something to do with the idea in that context of revelation. And so Paul says you have this grouping of gifts that are a gift from God that are different from what idols did. Idols were dumb. They're mute. They couldn't tell you what they wanted. You had to guess. God's given you what you want, and you're still divided like you're back in your old idolatrous ways here. And Paul's trying to lay out to them this diversity of gifts is for the building up of the body of Christ so that we can please God by knowing his will. That's the goal of all of this, to be able to know his will. So pillar number one is simply this. We have the same Lord, the same God, the same Spirit. That should drive our unity. Secondly, should be this. We have diversity of gifts and diversity of opinions and diversity of personalities, but that's a part of functioning body of Christ because God designed it that way. So use whatever gifts, whatever background, whatever you have for the glory of God and work together to build up the body of Christ. That's the goal in this. It's for us to work. But finally, this. Paul hammer home the fact that these things are gifts from God that have no place for arrogance. You know, so often in the New Testament books that do lay out the problem of divisiveness, they go back to human divisiveness oftentimes comes from human arrogance. That we want to view ourselves superior to someone else, and if that means we have to divide up into the camp of superior versus inferior, we'll do that. So in Romans, you've got Jew and Gentile who each viewed themselves as superior to where Paul says, no, you're both in the same boat. No one of you is righteous, not a single one. Or you get Galatians where they believe, well, if I do this thing or that thing, if I'm circumcised and I don't eat pork, then I'm superior to you. Paul says, no, that's not how things work in, for sons of God any longer here. And to have that mentality is to make the death of Christ void. And here in Corinth, they seem to have the mindset of, I am superior for you if I have a certain gift. So notice the language Paul used in these 11 verses, I think, to sort of show us his underlining point of, there's no reason for you to boast. In fact, the very name of this section is now concerning spiritual gifts. Now, the word spiritual, I think, has a, a bad connotation in our world. At least the way we view it is not necessarily biblical. We think of spiritual in terms of 
like fleeting spirits, right? Like Casper the ghost sort of flowing around or in terms of like emotional in some way. The Greek word pneumatikos normally has the idea of that which is made by the spirit. So it's not so much the idea of like this floating around Casper, an emotional thing. It's that which comes from the spirit. Like in chapter 15, he talks about the, the spiritual body. The idea is the body that's going to be made or constructed by the spirit of God. So he begins by talking about these spiritual gifts by saying, they're not your gifts. You didn't craft them in the back room and make these things up. They are made by the Spirit. He then calls them gifts and uses the word given over and over again in these 11 verses. It's something given to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't take it. And then he says in verses 6 and 11, the working and the empowering of these gifts is done by the Lord and by Jesus, not by you. So here's Paul's argument. The spiritual gifts came from the Spirit. He made them. The Spirit gave them to you as gifts. And then it's God who works those gifts through you. It sort of eliminates you altogether. And one of Paul's famous sayings oftentimes is, Wherefore then is the boasting? You could have thrown it in there to make my point a little stronger here. That's this point here. How can you boast about something you didn't do? These are gifts given to you. And so often it's our arrogance that leads to this division. And Paul attacks arrogance here by making it clear that these gifts were not your gifts. They were given to you. And so you should be asking yourself, how do I make these gifts blessings? Because the Corinthian church had made these gifts not blessings. They had made these gifts a source of division. And Paul's saying what you should be doing is learning how to practice these gifts to jump into chapter 13 through love. And when you learn how to practice those gifts through the eye of love, you'll have chapter 14, where the entire body of Christ is functioning in a way for the purpose of edification and building up the body. That's the goal of these gifts. It's not about selfishly showing off your talents and showing how great you are but rather it's about looking at the other and saying, how can I serve them? Now I ask you to do this. Apply that to so many of the other arguments we have today. And ask yourself, will you make a choice? Is this out of selfishness or serving others? And all of a sudden we'll see that 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11 is not just some fight they had back then. It applies today as well as we navigate the numerous divisions of our world. Our world is divided. How great would it be if the world could look at a church and see something different? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Spirit. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for uniting us around you. Lord, help us, as difficult as it might be because of our arrogance and selfishness, to display that unity to a world around us so they can see a different way. Help us to build up one another up and not tear each other down. Father, bless those who are here today as they go about their day-to-day and they go about their week and back to their churches. Help us, Father, to use the gifts you've given us to build up the body, not arrogantly, but selflessly. In Christ's name, amen.